Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. I am Patrick Martins, host of The Main Course. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome back. It's um, Food Talk. We're back. We had a two-week spring break. Isn't that nice to have a radio station to take spring break as if we're still in college? I like that. You need a spring break, right? Did we take a winter break this year? I don't remember. But yeah, we did. We did. We take a break between Christmas and over Christmas and New Year's. So it's great. It's like, yeah, got to like it. That's what modern radio does. Anyway, um, I want to give a shout out. We've been filming every week. We're filming a new new shows for next season's PBS, and we had filmed a great one yesterday with Duki Hong, who's a chef in New York City in K-Town, has a great, great, he's a young 25, 26-year-old kid, he's great, he just wrote a book, co-authored a book, I should say, with Matt Rodbard called Koreatown, uh, with the two of them, spent a couple of years traveling all around America, exploring Koreatown's USA, um, and, and be, you know, beyond the usual LA, New York, San Francisco, you know big markets into little markets Duluth Georgia who knew and then they did this great these great great recipes so you can do Korean food at home um, often simpler than you think and that w- research was done in Dookie's Dookie's Dookie kitchen <laughs> with his electric stove on 38th Street in Manhattan where we ended up filming some of the segments too if you haven't seen the book Koreatown it's great it's a great story about Korean food in America um, and a ton of recipes that are simple and work and are vetted by a chef which is a really rare thing these days um, in my opinion, in the book world. Um, so congratulations to those guys. It was great. Next week we'll be with Wilson Tang at Nam Wa Tea Parlor. That should be fun. America's first dim sum restaurant going back to like the 20s. So good stuff happening on film and good stuff back happening on the radio. Today's show, I'm going to have to like have a, a disclaimer uh, before with the show. If you're a recovering alcoholic and um, you, you, know, you don't want to be tempted back to the dark side, don't listen to this show today. Because we cover food and wine a lot in this show. I mean, that's pretty much what this show is. We have psalms on, we have winemakers on, we have producers on, we have chefs on all the time. <clears throat> we don't do a whole lot in the cocktail realm, but really the whole show today, the whole hour is going to be devoted to just that particular subject. Uh, with two really interesting books that pretty much just landed. Uh, the first one, and my first guest in a minute, would be Jules Aaron. The name of the, her her book is Zen and Tonic, uh, savory and fresh cocktails for the enlightened drinker. But it's really an interesting twist on the whole cocktail culture thing because uh, <laughs> there's like a health angle to it. So I don't know. I mean, there's a little like if you read her description, it says Jules Aaron is a New York City based mixologist, beverage consultant, consultant, and natural lifestyle expert, which kind of seems like an oxymoron in a sentence. Okay. 
But I'm just saying that. But apparently it's true. You can be all of those things in one sentence. And she's the embodiment of that. So I'll talk about her book, which is really this kind of boring down deep into how to do really super delicious, healthy, um, cage-free, organic cocktails. And there's just it's funny because every time I pick up one of these books and I flip through it, I'm like, damn, I, you know, when you think about it. She's got a point. Uh, and then my second guest is a guy who's, who is apparently named appropriately. Uh, his name is Mark Bitterman, and he has a great new book out called Field Guide to Bitters and Amari. Um, and I guess if you're listening to the show, you know what those are. You know, bitters are those little tinctures that we have been seeing exploding lately in the realm of cocktails and mixology as Everyone seems to be producing yet another artisanal bitter in Amaria, that whole class of Italian bitters that I kind of drew up drinking because my last name's Colomeco, and Italians just seem to never get enough of their bitter after dinner concoctions made from God knows what. So that's the whole show. It's going to be about cocktail mixology uh, with Jules, and then we're going to talk about the history of bitters and Amaria, how to make them at home. And both these books are astonishing, too, in, in terms of like. Like the front end of both of these books is how to make stuff at home um, in terms of tinctures and syrups and bitters and all that sort of extractions and then be, and then use them in, in, the, in the realm of making cocktails and in the case of Mark's book, even incorporating them into the savory side of the dinner table. So let's just, without any further ado, introduce uh, Jules. Jules, hi. Sorry for taking up five minutes of your time with the intro, but how are you? Quite all right. I'm good. How are you, Mike? Good, good, good. So you're New York based, but you're out of town today. Is that what's going on? That is correct. Um, I mean, I was, I mean, honestly, I haven't worked in New York in a while because once, once I started this book project, I kind of moved out of New York City, um, per se, and um, moved um, to my cabin upstate New York, um, where it was a, a little bit of a better working environment in terms of uh, <laughs> book writing. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine is trying to write one of her, uh, another novel, and she's disconnected <laughs> her internet, her television. She lives in Brooklyn, but it's like, you know, she just can't get it done. Like, so there's no, they have no Wi-Fi, they have no internet, they have no television. That's exactly how my cabin is. Right, so it's kind of like what she did is she turned her her, her, her floor through apartment in Park Slope into a cabin, basically. Although I guess she can <laughs> see, she sneaks out once in a while with her laptop and goes somewhere with a, with a Wi-Fi hotspot and responds to everyone's emails and stuff. So, yeah, so, t- so tell me about, just if I can, just before we get to the book, and again, the name of the book is Zen mm-hmm. and Tonic, what got you, and, and, and I'm sure there's a million reasons, but, you know, you're... I'm I'm not going to guess your age because people hate it when you do that. But there's this this resurgence in cocktail culture that I've been here since 1982. And, you know, there was just like standard stuff for like my whole lifetime here. And then who knows where it started and who knows how. I mean, there was, you know, there was milk and honey and there was these places. But like some time in this millennium cocktails just blew up like the whole thing around it i mean dale degroff's been on this thing forever he's like the godfather but what drew you into the cocktail realm um you know i mean i put myself through school bartending you know it was as simple as that you know i actually um i have a master's in publishing from nyu so that was what i wanted to do i wanted to work in um, magazine publishing actually and i did for a couple of years and I had a pretty disillusioned experience, um, a little <laughs> yeah. bit, right? You've mastered it like devil uh, wears Prada, um, but without the the happy ending. And so, <laughs> I ended up going back to bartending. Um, and you know, it just 
always seem to go back to bartending. And um, um, the book really is... Um, uh, it's really a personal experience for me because for a really, really long time, I just I never really cared for the, the simple syrups and the sour mixes that were involved in cocktail making. Um, they gave me headaches. They gave me hangovers. And I just, I just couldn't stand it. Um, and so I started by modifying my own drinks, really. Um, and then as like, the, like you said, somewhere in this millennium, like things started, um, blowing up in the cocktail world. And I think it has to do with how, um, the food culture, um, developed and, uh, just, it got so, um, it, you know, things just, um, got, there was such a, like a revolution in clean eating. And, um, I think that's what kind of drove me to, um, Make that connection. I mean, I was always um, a healthy person. I grew. I grew up in a household. Uh, my mom was a sous chef, um, so I grew up with you know loving food, right. eating a lot of good food. Right. Um, but it was always real food. Right. It was never canned. It was never boxed. So uh, you know, I have that real food experience, um, and I can't. I, I don't like to substitute that for you know quick fixes. And so, um, in that sense, um, you know, I was always looking to streamline, um, clean out, you know, the ingredients that weren't necessary in, in cocktails. Um, and so, yeah. And then, um, you know, I was uh, really into fitness as well. So, which is funny. I can interrupt you for one second. Eating. Right. I read this sure. about you. So, so uh, your dad used to make you these tonics too. That was like kind of another backstory, right? You grew up drinking these concoctions that your dad made. Is that, was that part oh, yeah. of Right. That's right. Yeah. My dad, oh my goodness. He had like this whole cycle for me. Um, eight, eight week cycle where <laughs> every week I would drink a different herbal tonic, uh, that he would make. Yeah. Um, they were they were like uh, stinging nettle and sea. But where did he get that from? I mean, where where did you grow up that you were doing that? Where, I'm just Montreal. Curious. I grew up in Montreal. And where did that? Where did your dad pick that tradition up? Because that's kind of an outlier. I mean, that's 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 kind of fringe. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not sure where he picked that up, but he was always into that. I mean, he was a um, he was a bartender and a restaurateur for for years as well. But um, he was always into like that natural um, herb, herbal um, stuff. So um, can't really tell you where he picked it up, but he was so into that stuff. And yeah, and. You know, he was just always trying to boost my immunity and just wanted me to grow up nice and strong. <laughs> God, my parents are great. I mean, you had two great parents. You were, you were eating real food, and, and your dad was making, like, these really cool kind of holistic um, um, tonics for you. That's great. I mean, and this was really at a time, I think... Um, I'm going. I guess I'm going back to the you know 80s or 90s when that was really kind of behavior that was you know an outlier. That that wasn't what was going on in the neighborhood in most households. Right. Right. Exactly. But it, but it does it does explain where you got to where you are. Um, and I and also you know a majoring in publishing at NYU that's great. So let's drop 200 grand into something that, like like an industry that's <laughs> shrinking every five minutes, right? Um, <laughs> and then you make money at bartending. So now now it all makes sense. But uh, the the funny thing for me, so so the fitness side too. I mean, it's funny. I for me, it's like a dichotomy. I work out seven days a week. I've always worked out seven days a week. I've got black belts. I used to box. I've run five marathons. I swam around Key West. We came in second place in a relay a couple of years ago. And and I drink. And that always seemed like a complete disconnect. Like my 
my friends that are really healthy, like the guys I swim around Key West with, the guys I work out with for the most part, are mostly like teetotaling, non-smoking, rail thin, up at five in the morning, A-type personalities. And, you know, I'm an ex-chef, which means, you know, if they want to work out with me at eight in the morning, I'm like, guys, I don't wake up at eight in the morning. Like, I'll, we can work out at the crack of 11, okay? That's early for me. I'm, I'm still on chef's hour. So it's, it's funny. What, how did, like, the fitness thing and the mixology thing, what's the intersection there? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's been a long time coming, but I mean, I mean, uh, I know you practice karate, so did I, and so when I was uh, I was uh, testing for my black belt, I was lucky enough to be working at a bar that allowed me to leave um, during happy hour to go and uh, to the dojo. leave my black belt from my master, and that was the only time that he would do this, and so. Um, um, you know, it's just, but but since then, you know, I've also studied um, um, holistic health. I, I have a, a, um, um, a certification in, in um, health coaching, holistic health coaching. Um, I've also studied Chinese medicine. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I've always had like this, yeah, a very opposite kind of uh, perspective. Um, but it always, yeah, like you were saying, you know, your friends, they were all, you know, the, the, the health fitness uh, uh, types, you know, they, they were so clean in their eating habits, right? But, um, you know, and it just bothered me because I was in that world, too. It just bothered me that they were just eating chicken and broccoli every night. <laughs> yes. it, that, that just wasn't a way to live. Like and in steam, the same, in steam the same, skinless uh, chicken. <laughs> sense, you know, if they were drinking, it would be vodka soda because that would be the locale option. And so that just, like, there's more to life than that, you know? And as a foodie, I needed to, like, help people <laughs> just experience more out of it, so. Well, you do. I mean, this book is really this kind of a, I mean, it's, it's, it's the last thing I needed to see, because now it's just going to encourage more of my debauchery, but I can use it as a, as a defense later on. So it starts out, just so people can get the, the breakdown. The name of the book is Zen and Tonic. My guest is Jules Aaron, who is, as I mentioned, in one sentence, apparently a, a, several contradictory, she's a New York-based mixologist beverage consultant and natural lifestyle expert go figure but she is she just explained so now that we got past that so it's broken down into a bunch of sections the fundamentals which is kind of big and which is a chunk of this book and i kind of want to dwell there for a while and then after that cocktails by description like lush and fruity fresh and crisp garden fresh Floral and fragrant sweet, and, the, and, the, and the, the recipes are astonishing. I mean, some of these recipes I'm just reading, thinking, "Wow, if, if if I had all those ingredients, I'd want one of those like right now." But talk about in the essential thing. Okay, we don't need to talk about bar tools um, as much. So you have like you know the muddler, the jiggler, the shaker, the strainer, uh, ice tray. Uh, you know, ice. Let's. I mean, ice is a whole. We could do 20 minutes on ice, I suppose, if we wanted to. Um, essential glassware. What, if I could just ask you this: Why the champagne flute for cocktails? Um, the champagne, well, you know, I mean, um, there's definitely, um, I have um, at least a few drinks in here where you're muddling some, some, um, some fresh berries and, and herbs into, um, you know, instead of doing, doing the standard mimosa type drink where you're just pouring, you know, um, a bottled orange juice on top of your champagne, you know, you just muddle a few berries with some herb like sage, for instance, and then you, you, you know, you, you, um, you have some champagne over it. So Got you. Okay. Fresh. All right. Yeah. It's just I'm. It's one of the. It's one of the. It's one of the few glasswares that I sort of I, like. I love champagne. I'm a complete wine nut, and I always tell people drink champagne out of a white wine glass because I just hate champagne.
wine flutes because of the shape. But anyway, they're nothing to do. The cocktails look good, and then they're kind of sexy. They're long stem, they're thin, <laughs> and they'll keep the bubbles intact for a while in something where you've added bubbles. But you had this, I mean, I love how this thing begins with the choices of alcohol, which is something, honestly, I felt like really stupid, like it never occurred to me. In this world when, like, you know, if you're in the food space or the beverage space or the wine space, the whole like GMO, non-interventionist, back to roots thing is so core to what we're all about these days. And then I thought like I was I met somebody at, at, at a great wine bar in New York called Ten Bells. It's a natural wine bar in Broom Street. And mm-hmm. There was a big party there last week. There was a Jura producer and all the my Psalm friends were there. And there were a couple of women there. And one of them wrote a book on a big book on like uh, on, on whiskey and mixology. And her first mm-hmm. question to me, like to, to see if I knew what I was talking about, was you know what's the biggest producer like the biggest producer of vodka in the world is Smirnoff, and and it's supposed to be a Russian vodka. And then she said like where's it made? And I said anywhere they want to make it. She said what's it made from? I said the cheapest shit they can make it out of. You know it doesn't matter. Smirnoff can make it. It's, it's a distilled grain alcohol, but it can be made from molasses. There are no rules. It's, it's yeah. double distilled, triple, it's flavorless, odorless, colorless, it's junk. And then, you, and so you're actually saying, okay, that's, that part's true, but here are vodkas that are good. Here are tequilas that are good. Here are mezcals, which is really some interesting stuff. Right, yeah, because, I mean, if you're going to pay so much attention to what you eat, right. why wouldn't you do the same Correct. About with your spirits? Right, yeah. right. Uh, so, and, and, yeah, okay, so, so that, that's just like this neat thing. And, you, and then you identify, like, brands, like I had no idea. I'm not, I'm not a vodka guy, but, you know, Square One people can buy, Rain Organics, Prairie Organic. I do drink tequila, and I'm glad you mentioned Casa Noble. It's a great tequila. It's really good. I thank Eric Asimov from the New York Times. That's how I heard about it. So you go through, like, all the basic spirits and some winemakers that are, uh, that are natural and that are clean. And then you kind of get into the drinks with benefits. Talk a little bit about this. Like, how, how, when did you start to incorporate? How do you pronounce that? Acai? I, I know what those things are. I have them in my, in my, in my cabinet. Acai? Acai. See, I always fuck it up. Sorry. Um, but those little <laughs> tiny little berries that when you soak them a little bit, they almost get like tapioca kind of starch thing going on. Um, you've got this whole bunch of like healthy things to incorporate too. And I guess that just comes from your health end. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, these are all um, little things that I picked up along the way studying Ayurvedic sciences and, and Chinese medicine and uh, just like the holistic side of things. And it's just really easy, you know, if, you've, if you do, you know, um, buy these things that are not hard to find these days, you right. know, if you've got like a, a natural food store nearby or, you know, I, I have a whole resource in the back of the book uh, where you can buy things online as well. And if you've got these things in your house, you know, it's very easy to just drop some, um, let's say, chia seeds into your um, drink, and you've got yourself a little boost of protein, and, um, you know, and and it's (laughs) that simple. (laughs) It is. And then the ice cube thing's so cool. Like, you have these pictures, it's great. Like, suddenly, like, I feel terrible because my ice cubes are just made from, like, New York tap water. Why aren't I putting, (laughs) like, edible flower ice cubes in my refrigerator, or cherry and noni juice ice cubes, or how about this, almond milk and vanilla ice cubes? That just sounds great. That's awesome because you can you can you can just drop one of those in your your iced latte or your iced coffee in the morning. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, you got pictures of ice cubes with stems of rosemary in them and serrano peppers. It's it's so cool. Uh, then you have a whole section on garnishes, which is really really great. And then this thing of syrup. So, and, and you're giving recipes for how to make these syrups. So these are just this, so you hold up at your cabin upstate and just playing around with these recipes. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I had like this whole uh, moment um, where I was like, that's it. I quit bartending. You know, I moved upstate and, you know, I was sitting in this cabin and that's where I had like that first epiphany for the book. Um, And yeah, I just started playing around with flavor combinations and just, yeah, experimenting with that. All right. So (laughs) I I live in the, I live on the Lower East Side and I don't go into the bars too frequently, but uh, you know, there's bars all over me that don't close till four in the morning and the kids right. run a drunk and vomiting at 4.30 and, and he's crying into their cell phones and falling over. Um, and shots are a big part of like bar culture for young kids. And then I look at this picture. It's like, it's like an aerial shot straight down on obviously what is six shot glasses. But yours are the Beatbury Bomb. <laughs> Talk about this because these things sound great. I mean, so the ingredient is I'll, I'll read the ingredient list. This is crazy. This does not sound like it. Until the end, it sounds like something, yeah, that, you're, that you'd make it with a health food recipe. The ingredients are four beets, two apples, a cup of frozen raspberries, and, drumroll, four ounces of gin. And that's it. <laughs> Boom. In a processor, bang, filtered, and then drink it, right? That's right. Yeah, it's that simple. Um, it's just a nice way to, you know, if you're just before going out, you know, if you want to do a shot with your friends, it's a great way to just um, liven th- things up. And the beat, you know, it's just, it's got so many um, health benefits that, you know, it's, it's just nice to have these um, healthy ingredients in your drink, you know? <laughs> the rejuvenator. I'm loving this. This is like, you're just, you're just encouraging those of us that don't need encouragement. So uh, <laughs> the rejuvenators, it's, it's served in like a, I mean, the picture of it. These reminds me of like my grandmother's wine glasses. I don't know where you got those glasses for this shot, but I grew up with stuff like that. They're really hard to drink from, but they're cute. Like etched glass in this ridiculous shape, the kind of stuff no one drinks out of anymore, except if you have a cool <laughs> cocktail bar. Um, but again, these ingredients. So a, a tablespoon of bee pollen granules, check healthy so far three ounces of pomegranate juice i'm in that sounds great and then yes four ounces of whiskey (laughs) yeah i mean it doesn't get more simple than that you know and it's just it just makes you feel good this you know like a drink like that will actually make you feel really good um and that was the point of the book keep it easy simple and delicious and, and they, they keep going on. I, one of the ones that caught my eye was the drunken avocado. Now, how did you even get to the place where you made this drink? Because it's, I mean, I just don't think of avocados as a, in, in, the, in the world of beverage. So tell me about that. I guess because you were looking at healthy, I mean, I can kind of, okay, you're casting a net, and they're considered healthy, healthy fats. They're good for you. But talk about that drink, would you? Well, I mean, uh, for me, like, when I think of tequila, I think of, you know, guacamole. I think of (laughs) spice, you know. And so, like, what are the combinations that go so well with, you know, um, with guacamole and salsa and, you know, uh, when you're dipping your tortilla chip in in all of this, you know, and you're having um, a margarita, so why not pair all of that together and have a drink that in basically embodies this whole concept. Yeah, it's like this healthy green margarita. And then, again, these ingredients, they're so simple. Uh, two tablespoons of, I guess, diced, small diced, whatever, avocado in one form or another. Uh, a teaspoon of fresh grated ginger. That's good. Uh, half a cup of cubed pineapple, plus some more big chunks for garnish. Three lime wedges, some fresh cilantro sprigs, and then two ounces of tequila. And you're, uh, so you're muddling the avocado, ginger, pineapple, lime, cilantro, Fill with ice, add the tequila, shake well, double strain, and garnish with pineapple cubes. I mean, that just sounds like something you can get plastered on. (laughs) It's delicious. I know. That's the problem. It has tequila in it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it does have tequila in it, yes. Uh, but, you know, you can make it without tequila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then it's a smoothie. You know, what I love about this stuff is, like, everything in the book sounds like the kind of stuff I drink in the summer all day long before dinner. Uh, and then you're adding the stuff that I drink before dinner, but right before dinner or with dinner or after dinner. So it's, like, super, super healthy. And then here's the booze. And it's kind of like like sneaking in the sucker punch. <laughs> Well, it's a great book. Congratulations. I mean, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't do a lot of beverage stuff on the shows. Most of the time, I get these books in the mail, and they go straight to the strand, where I just say, keep them, give them, you know. I, I don't, there's just so much bad stuff out there. But, I mean, this is really, how many recipes are in this? Do you know you wrote the damn thing? A hundred. A hundred. I should have yeah. counted. So it's, it's so, it's like a primer on the correct boozes to buy from clear to brown to rum to tequila. Um, the, some really good brands and some hints on sourcing. And then what you going to need to make the cocktails in terms of like the basic equipment once you have that investment you don't really need to buy that stuff anymore some options for glassware which make a lot of sense how to make syrups how to make extractions and then these recipes that are just great 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 um congratulations on the book um my liver is probably saying no thank you but 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 they really actually sound like you could rationalize your way of saying this is a really hell i mean you're not going to drink 20 of these or five of these but if you have one or two of these they actually sound like they're great for you well, that's the thing is, you know, because they're so nutrient-dense, you're not going to want to have too many either. So, yeah, it's a good way to, you know, get some, some good, good stuff in you and enjoy yourself. Well, good. So now that you're done with the book, you, are you touring on it? Are you doing anything? Are you having fun? Are you going back to the dojo? I'm actually, I'm actually in the process of writing a second book, nothing to do with cocktails, but actually has to do with vegan cheese. So that's what I'm working on right now. You are finding niches to write about, aren't you? And what's, if you don't mind me asking, what style of karate did you study? What's that? So what style of karate? Um, Kyokushin Kai. You study Kyokushin? Where? Um, uh, actually, I studied at, in Oyama, the Oyama Studios um, in Midtown on 34th Street. Who was your instructor? The, uh, Elizabeth Powell Garai's husband? Um, yeah, I know those guys. He he studied with me because Kyoku Shin was is my black belt, so I got that back in '84, and then it became Oyama Karate because Shihan exactly, and it split off. And our dojo was on West Fourth Street above the Lampsons. It was a really tough school. I mean, it was like the black belt only night. Guys were getting dragged out with broken everything, and the black belt test was brutal. And then I, I know who your instructor is because he was actually a contemporary of mine in the '80s. He opened up a dojo that's like on the second or third floor off of Fifth Avenue, right in Midtown. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Uh, was it Michelle? Yeah, I don't. It's, it's, it's a husband-wife team. I, I just remember that because I see them still on Facebook. But that's a great style. That's a tough style, kid. Congratulations. It is. It's a very tough style. I had 15 fights to do for my black belt. Your black belt test is brutal. It's not just 15 fights, but it's 15 fights against other black belts that they bring in from out of state as f- to beat up fresh meat. And, and yeah. you know, for the first four or five, you're kind of on point. And then those low kicks and all the stuff start to get to you. Um, oh, yeah. And, and like by the last five, you're just going, okay, this is for my black belt. This is for my deal. Let's go, kid. Come on. There's no, there's no dog in it. I, I will tell you. I mean, I shouldn't say this on the radio because it sounds gross, but this is how tough it was. I was actually so cocky. I biked to my black belt test on a bicycle, and I biked home, and my legs were like so swollen. When I got home, I peed blood for about five hours. Oh my goodness! Kyoku Shindes, congratulations, as they say in the dojo. Us, um, us. It's a great book. My guest has been Jules Aaron. So. There she goes. She walks the walk and talks the talk. She's got a black belt and a great style of karate. She makes some badass drinks, and now she's going to write a book about vegan cheese. I love it. All right. Keep up the great work. Look for When that book comes out, send me a copy. We'll get you on the radio again. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. Thank you. Okay, my next guest, stay tuned. I'll take a quick spot, but I've got a great guy coming on. His name is, appropriately, Mark Bitterman. His book is The Field Guide to Bitters and Amari. Quick break, and we'll be back with Mark in the studio. Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome. Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, the soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this the style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So the Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So, if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, folks, welcome back. Michael Michael here, Food Talks, the show, segment two for this particular day. And as I said, in the interest of full disclosure, if, if you're not into booze or mixology, this is not the show for you. Um, but I am, so it's, it's, it's for me. 
<clears throat> in any case, Mark Bitterman, we've never met before, man. Welcome to Food Talk. Great to have you in here. Thank so, you for having me. First of all, great name. I mean, wow. What got you into like the bitters thing? What lured you into this world? Yeah, I like to kid around that it was genetics. Cause, I was going to say that, but I figured everyone else did. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not so sure because I did start early. Uh, I was goofing around with cocktails when I was a kid and obviously not drinking them, but I liked I think I was such a bad baker that it, it was the one thing I could turn to. Uh, it was my solace. And then uh, by high school, I was kind of collecting wine. And uh, was, again, not a really big drinker, but I love the flavor and the stories in wine. And, by high school? Yeah, I had a wine this cellar like in high school. This is like this whole millennial thing. Like I, I was well, – I was in – so you're, free from, you're from New York? I was born in New York. Okay, well, anyway, so like my, my, my world's wine guys and food guys and restaurant guys and chefs. That's all I do. And um, – you know, in the wine space, like there's like this new breed of sommeliers that are like everywhere now. They're like 25 years old yeah. and they're freaking absolute geniuses. And I keep meeting them. Like we were in, I was in Bordeaux with Patrick Capiello. We're staying at the same hotel. Patrick's got Pearl and Ash and Rebel. Of course, Patrick's almost 40, which I guess almost makes him God He's knows what. Almost not a millennial anymore. Almost yeah. not a millennial anymore. <laughs> but he was with, he brought with him like eight psalms that he'd selected from Las Vegas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, a few from New York. And the oldest one was like 32 and the average age was like the mid 20s. I'm like, how the F do you know this much about wine? But you're in that wheel. So you guys just sort of started young. You were smart. And instead of going out and doing Jaeger shots, you were drinking like you were actually developing a palate. Yeah, between Jaeger shots. <laughs> okay, be honest. <laughs> so really, so you got the wine what, because it was a beverage at home at the table? Yeah, it was a beverage at home. It was Santa Barbara, California is where I grew up. And it was just, it was, frankly, it was one of those things that like, I liked the novelty of it almost as a kid. I was like, there's this beautiful stuff. You could right. buy a bottle for like $10 and right. you could put it away and bring it out, you know, two years later. And I just kind of collected it sort of out of dorky geek stamp collecting kind of interest, I think, as much. I never had really the encyclopedic knowledge that a good sommelier will have. Right, that you need to pass the exams. I'm not sure you need yeah. that to enjoy it at all. I, yeah. In fact, I'm sure that you don't because I don't have it, but it does not stop me from loving it and putting my nose in every glass and yeah. admiring yeah. how they change and, and now becoming like a big natural wine drinker. So, But bitters, this is a funny thing. So I, I grew up, I'm Italian, so I grew up like in West Philly, Italian-American neighborhood. And, you know, my grandparents and my mom, she was a great chef, a great home cook chef. And they would, there was homemade wine. It was somebody in West Philly made a wine called Moroni wine, came in a big green jug. And then there was like the stuff that they drank after dinner. And it was that esoteric collection of like CNR, all those weird kind of Italian yeah. Amaro. Yeah. So I grew up, and then I grew up eating stuff like dandelion greens mm -hmm. and arugula yep. and yep. chicory and those sauteed bitter things. So that was never strange to me. But then when I, like, when I met my like suburban white friends that were eating whatever they were eating, it was like, no way. Like that wasn't part of the American palate. Wasn't so, touched. So what what drew you into bitters? Well, I had a similar uh, upbringing to you in a way, except it, instead of West Philly, it was the foothills of Santa Barbara, California. Uh, there, there's a similarity there, but <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but you know, we, I mean, we made wine. Uh, we would uh, go uh, berry hunting, and we made wines out of every kind of berry you could imagine. I mean, the, wow. like berries people don't know out here, like alali berries, cool things like that. Um, and uh, not into Amari. We didn't have the Italian heritage. It was more of a mixed Jewish, weird, uh, uh, northeastern, uh, Protestant combo type thing. That's a mashup. Yeah, we had the mashup. <laughs> Ashkenazi Jew meets wasp. We had that. Um, but yeah, and then you know we grew our own food the same way. We had a nice. nice garden in the back. And, and so I just grew up with kind of the palate of fresh vegetables and, 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 and kind of ranging home cooking. And that kept me, you know, I think, open-minded from day one. And so but I did, I did have one cool thing I, I like to kid around about was that I'm old enough, too, that back in the day when I come visit New York City, where my family's from, uh, I could pass for 21 when I was 
14, 15. Did a mustache or something? Yeah, and I just kind of – being with my dad who has kind of a swagger. He's the old New York dude and he knows his way around town. And so we'd hit bars. And, <laughs> and I, you know, again, I wasn't Jeez. abusing alcohol, but I, right. my but dad would indulge me like – Part of social life, part, man. Part it's... of social life. And I'd drink a martini up at like Gino's up on like That's 63rd and Lex. And I, I just always had that love of the cocktail from very early on. Let's pour down on the bitters thing because that, that's – again, the book's Bitters and Amari. So you define – you have it in the book and I don't want to read it verbatim. So bitters are what? These sort of extractions? You, 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 yeah. you define it. Yeah. The sexy definition is an alcohol-based flavor extract with a bitter foundation at the flavor. So there's two things. There's bitters and there's Amaro. Two different things. Two different things. Right. Bitters tend to be these tinctures. You're adding them in small droplets yep. or – Yep. Shakes, and we can get into that because there's that whole what is right. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, so they're, they're added to cocktails as part of a flavor profile Correct. for steering them. And these amari, which is the plural of amaro, are these kind of generally consumed in my mind after dinner as sort of almost digestives. You can have them before dinner too. Yep. They're just these kind of I don't know. You describe amari yeah. because yeah. you wrote the book. Yeah, well, then that's you know the, the beauty of it is it's a really simple definition, um, and it's it's not what people might think. There isn't you can't. A, a, a analysis of the, of the liquid itself isn't going to give you the answer. The, really, the ultimate definition is what shape of bottle is it in. If it's a small bottle for dropping or dashing, gotcha. it's a bitters. If gotcha. it's a big bottle for gulping or sipping right. uh, or mixing, it's an Amaro. And that, I, don't, I don't even look farther than that. And really, there's actually kind of a continuum because there are bitters that are probably sweeter and weaker than Amari. So they're like a really, really sturdy fernet, for example, which is a type of Amaro. Right. Those things can be muscular and burly and super, super dense. And a couple drops of those in a cocktail is going to totally transform it. And then there are bitters, frankly, maybe on the not-so-good variety that are quite weak and, and thin and light and delicate. And you'd have to use a couple of teaspoons or even a, a shot of it to get a result. So it's a whole continuum. That, right. Uh, that blends and crosses yep. over. And if you put these circles on each other, they overlap like crazy. Yep. And fu- it, I mean, it's funny because we, we, I talked to... My winemaker friends and Alice Firing is a great friend, and uh, I've been reading Elizabeth Legeron's book on natural wine. And you know, we think about like the history of man, and we've been we've been making we've been distilling stuff for you know seven yeah. eight thousand years BC. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a lot of written records. We don't have a lot of pieces of evidence because that stuff's been destroyed. But we know historically, we've been, and bitters go back just that far. That see, that's a cool point. So the oldest alcoholic beverage ever discovered on the face of the earth, they found some pottery shards. I forget where, somewhere in Central Europe. They did an analysis on these things, and there was some uh, grape wine. It was a grape and barley wine residue with hawthorn berries in it. Hawthorn berries, a bitter medicine. Uh, And because it's bitter and medicinal, there was also honey Honey. in this residue. So you know that. You found that research. And so the first alcoholic beverage ever discovered on the face of the earth was an Amaro. It's crazy, right? It's an old tradition, and it's continued nonstop for the last seven or 8,000 years. And then you throw in the ability to distill. So yeah. this alembic comes in, and we don't know exactly when or where. We think it was the Middle East somewhere. Yeah. And we, we were, I think I'm 99.9 sure that initially it was used for extraction of flowers per- and herbs, yep. perfumes yep. for health benefits. And then it got in somebody's hands. I mean, I, again, the story has it because this is a lure that as the Moors came to Europe through Spain, that the Europeans got their hands on these things and said, well, if you're, I'd if, rather drink it than what if it. I put wine in one end yeah. of this thing and this shit comes out that's 100 proof on the other end? We're on to something. And yeah. that's kind of the, the we began to distill 
alcohol. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably a fair assessment. And I think it's exactly it started most likely for floral about 2000 BC or so. I think that's when it came about. So distillation has a, a kind of a cool history because it, it served its master. Like who, who wanted what from it? Uh, I think correct, correct. Because you could make medicines from it. Mm-hmm. You could get extracts and medicines, and it's still how perfumes made, good perfumes made, which is astonishing. Because you just you're just you're sort of isolating these esters that are volatile in concentrations that make them superb, yep. um, and and then wouldn't exist in nature in that density. Um, and then we're we're you know thanks the whole booze world for distillation. Yeah, well, then you put your finger on it. I mean, that's the beauty of, of any of the like the medicinal background, the, er, the, uh, the herbalist tradition is it's a way of concentrating whatever kind of volatile properties in a plant in, in, a, in a stable uh, base like alcohol, and you can keep it around 24-7, 365 days a year. Because uh, if you were relying on a medicine, it was only in bloom for a month, a year. You're, you're right. What do you do the other 10 months? Yeah. Correct. So right. They'd fix it. Um, so yeah, I think the the, the distilling tradition is, is pretty cool, and how it's also evolved to serve Amari in new ways. It's actually not finished. Like in the last sixty, seventy years, for example, they finally figured out how to distill gentian root, and they, so they make an actual distillate, like Aves and Suze, mm. distilled gentian root. So gentian root, which is it's that's the a, flavor of Suze. That's funny. Yeah, my friend, I had a French chef that loves it, and he. I don't think you. Can you get it here in the States now? You can now. You couldn't before. And every time mm-hmm. I used to go to France, as a gift for Christian Louvre, great guy. Christian, if you're listening, I love you, man. One of my mentors. I would bring him home a couple of bottles of Suze, which is this like, weird-tasting French concoction. I don't know what it was, but he grew up eating it. He would like, love that stuff. Made him so happy. Yeah. So gentian root, that's what the flavor is. Yeah, and so gentian's this, it's really widely used in Amaro's and bitter, Amari and bitters. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, there's a many different, many, many, many different kinds. The most famous uh, in Central, in, 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 in Western Europe is probably the, uh, the yellow gentian from France, the south of France. And it's used in Italian Amari and in Spanish and in, 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 in Switzerland and in Croatia. It's used everywhere. But it's also used in French uh, liqueurs, of course. And its most common and well-known use is in a, in a type of drink that's a relative of vermouth called the gentien. Mm. So vermouth is a fortified wine right. with, uh, with uh, botanicals extracted in it with bitterness in it that comes from wormwood. Vermouth, vermouth comes from the German word vermut yep. or wormwood. Uh, so a gentian, just like a vermouth, except it used gentian root instead of amaro. Have um, you met Bianca Moravia from Uncouth? No. Have you heard of her? Yeah. Yeah, she's cool. We had her on the, uh, we had her on the radio a while back, and we're, we filmed with her a couple of weeks ago. She's doing this. I mean, she's like bored. She's making this like really small batch artisanal vermouth in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Oh man. Um, and, and no, no caramel coloring, like straight up, like. Yeah. And and she's growing her own herbs and botanicals upstate New York organically. Like she's yeah. hardcore. That's one of those things most people don't know is that uh, red vermouth, sweet vermouth. <laughs> It's from white wine. Right. That lovely color. And I feel terrible. You know, I feel, I'm doing these two interviews today. Like my drink for, like, I don't feel terrible. Fuck it. But, but my, my go-to drink for like forever has been the Negroni, like before it was popular. Um, mm-hmm. I've been drinking Negronis for 30 years because I, I always love Campari and I love gin. And, yep. and I use, now, that, now that there's better vermouths like Carpano, but still Carpano is full of caramel coloring. It's, I know. I realize yep. that. And Campari is fucking commodity shit. And yeah. I guess the gin's good. I don't but know, you can sorry. do like Dolan Blanc now. You know, that's, that's true. Like a, that's that's a, true. A, and that actually makes a beautiful, different, you know, very light. Totally uh, changed the profile yep. there's a bar there's a restaurant up here called lincoln um jonathan benno's restaurant in lincoln center that's a great restaurant they've got a whole section uh like a whole negroni program that offers you a million substitutes like you just said so go to a white vermouth going to a, yeah. a, 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 a instead of campari something that has that orange flavor in it yeah. that doesn't have the old bullshit coloring and isn't factory whatever there's a recipe in my book that's the embittered negroni and i pull back on the campari and the vermouth and just throw bitters in there to fill in the gap and it looks tastes delicious it's more focused and 
So talk about like the making of bitters at home. Yeah, this is really interesting. So again, the name of the book's bitters and Amari, um, a field guide to bitters and Amari uh, by Mark Bitterman. What do people? What will? What are like the basics that people need to make these things at home? Because it's way simpler than you think. It's simpler than you think, and you get better results than you'd think you'd get just doing it yourself. It's it's. Uh, there's a very low barrier to entry in this sort of thing. You can buy a, a list of just fantastic, high quality botanicals at two or three or four uh, uh, sites online. Uh, you get yourself a couple bittering agents. We talked about a few before, like gentian root and wormwood, but it could be quassia. It could be devil's club that could be there's a ton of them uh, chinchona bark which is the same bittering agent that's used in in uh, in quinine and in, in tonic uh, just buy a bunch of these and then you get a hold you of can get these online though. yeah it's easy peasy what a funny world huh it's it's so weird it takes you about 15 minutes to put together a, a couple batches and then i good. think like then like so i before that what's a q top before that british company did that really good tonic water yeah. the right way i mean we were growing up it, it was totally acceptable in a great restaurant or bar to drink schweppes your yeah. gin and tonic was whatever the hell the gin was and the shit that's made from just junk with high fructose corn syrup yep. synthetic uh, quinine that right whole, yeah and i remember when q top it was a fever tree it was another fever one tree. that came out with and they actually did the research and went to south or whatever it took but it was like man now you can actually get that stuff online it's that easy it's that easy and 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 you can also buy really high quality tonic syrups so it's just the, it's the tonic concentrate. Now, the whole mess of people are making those around the country now, and then you just add some seltzer water, and you're off to the races. And when did your company start? Back in 2006. So I don't know if you heard the previous interview, but so up until so I got senior candidate two and worked in restaurant business all through that time frame. Um, and somewhere in the early part of this century, the, this this millennium. There began to be and guys like Dale DeGroff were always there, but they were kind of yeah. like outliers, and they had to play to the public. I mean, Dale had to make whatever if people were asking for dry martinis. Yeah. It's a dry martini, sir. I would like to shake and whatever. Um, but then suddenly there was this emergence of this cocktail culture. This really a studiously serious. Yeah. Uh, mixologists became a term that one bantered about, and you would go to places like PDT and Death and Company and and wherever there was a bunch of them all around. Clyde New York. Commons out in Portland, Oregon. Bunch. Uh, of, I don't know that, but I know New York City's. <clears throat> and you know, you had these guys that were really serious behind the bar, using these really dead on, like sourcing really good American yeah. spirits or really good gins or really good whatever, and and tinctures and the, an ice program that was very specific. You know what? <laughs> yeah. Like no one's using cedar ice anymore. No, 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 no. We hand carve our cubes, and yeah. that bitter thing was was like in lockstep with that yeah. because suddenly that whole ingredient thing opened up. Go back historically in America. Talk to me about like Peixos, the early America. So yeah. we're, we're in the early 1800s, 1825, in that time frame. Sure. So, you know, I mean, the, the cocktail general, some of the scholarship now on cocktails uh, pins the date of the earliest cocktails in the late 1700s. Wow. Kind of incredible. And I guess the first use, and that was the julep, came about way back then. And it was made with rum. So then in the uh, early 1800s, uh, cocktail came about, it was defined as a drink that was made with bitters, water, alcohol, and sugar. It was a cocktail. And uh, when that was happening, the bitters at the time were effectively patent medicines. They were Amari. It was the same thing. There was no difference between a bitters and an Amaro. Uh, actually, the word Amaro just means bitters right. in, in English. Right. So there was no difference. It was just an English Amaro. But 
these intense medicinal, terrible tasting things. Uh, no one knows really if the alcohol and sugar was added to the bitters to make it taste better, or if the bitter was asked, bitters were added to the alcohol and sugar to create some new creation. No one really knows. Um, but at any rate, those, uh, those, that, that whole invention spurred a, a, sort of a culture of innovation, and, and more and more and more drinks started to come out in different ways and styles. And it wasn't until the mid to uh, late 1800s you started to have actual celebrity bartenders, like pros, badasses, people who could make a ton of things, who knew the history, who in could... In New Orleans and New York yep, and New Chicago. Yep, I mean, yep. New Orleans was front and center yep. early on with all this stuff. New Orleans, front and center, uh, even Washington, uh, Virginia, the whole... This, there was just a lot of stuff going around there. So uh, that movement uh, went in lockstep with a proliferation of bitters, mm. but the proliferation... Prolif- that's a hard word to say. Proliferation. <laughs> you say it. Uh, bitters. Um, what was not really entirely synced up, to best of my knowledge, with cocktails. It was actually still this gigantic, thriving patent medicine world. So back in 1906, there was a Safe Food Standards Act, or the Safe Food Act mm. was passed, and suddenly you had to be bona fide. You couldn't just put, quote, snake oil, yeah. unquote, in your stuff, or you couldn't put formaldehyde or whatever else you felt like it in there, and you couldn't make claims like cures everything. So it put most of these people out of business. And suddenly you only had legitimate products around, but it culled quite a few from the American kind of wild west of bitters. And then what happened, of course, was prohibition after that. And that killed off just about everyone else. Yeah, that was the dark. I mean, that was a. Yeah. So that was for the restaurant business, for the wine growing in America, for viticulture, for everything. That was like the beginning. It was a prohibition. And then it was the Great Depression, which was horrible. Then it was the entrance into World War Two. I mean, it was just like 50 year black hole that we went in in the culinary world, spirits world and wine world. Yeah. And we wouldn't have had the Great Depression if we had not had prohibition. I'm convinced of it. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have bothered? Um, So, yeah. So uh, these these bitters like Amara, like Angostura and and Peixos, they were around through this whole scene and they became uh, a part of the mixology culture and part of the the, the canon the, of, of drink making but they weren't the only ones by a long shot and there were other really really popular ones two of the most ones that come to mind first and for, right, for, right off the top are like uh, uh, Boker's bitters really really widely used very versatile bitters and Abbott's bitters was the actual bitters used to make Manhattans mm. so I hope my friends over at Angostura aren't listening but Angostura is actually not the ideal aromatic bitters. It's the one that survived. It's it's really kind of a funny thing. That's so bartenders all around the world all using Angostura bitters, and that's just almost like shorthand for bitters. The weird thing is if you taste an Angostura, like we do tastings all the time, and right. we taste people through five or six or eight or 15 bitters, you get to Angostura, and you're like, wow, this just tastes like pumpkin pie meets apple pie meets uh, potpourri. And again, that's good. Those are good things. But is that what I want? And my beautiful, lean rye Manhattan with a fantastic vermouth. Actually, it's not. It almost never is. You go to a Boker's Bitters, and now you've got this bright, vibrant, almost minerally flavor. The thing just like punches, and the the, the tannins and the and it recede in the in the in the rye, and this vanillins come forward, and there's this 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 roughness to it that that actually becomes balanced, and it's a fantastic drink without the potpourri. So that's one of the things I like about bitters is it's, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why bitters are part of this resurgence in craft cocktails is they're a way to look back to a truer representation of the, the drink, a better celebration of the booze. It's all there in the bitters. Uh, and of course, there's all this cockamamie crazy stuff that people are 
building, putting together out of thin air. And so there's ways to innovate and create new flavor profiles. I mean, what is it? Uh, Avery, the guy who stole my last name for Bitterman's Bitters. I don't know what his deal is, but, uh, uh, you know, he did a, a, cho- a, a mole bitters and suddenly there's chocolate in cocktails that they're really, really not a history of that. Right. And frankly, it's indispensable. It's great. It's a great ingredient. And you have, don't you have something here with smoke? Yeah, smoke. Which sounded really interesting. It's one of the things that like when I first had. Oh yeah. When, when I first sort of morphed from really good agave-based tequilas and to really good mezcal, mm-hmm. I was like, "Whoa, smoke!" Just this hint in the background. Uh-huh. And, I mean, you talk about it in the book that, like, you, I mean, sm- smoke. We can't hold it. We smell it and we taste it in smoked foods, but it's such a hard thing to capture. Yeah. And yet you've got this great recipe for yeah. adding like what, was it oak ash or oak? oak? Yeah. So there's I actually got a couple. Um, one of them is. Um, uh, toasting oak chips, and that gives you a, it's a barrel bitters, and it's it's it, it does not taste like a barrel aged bitters. I actually am not interested in that, I'm gonna, but it tastes like this fantastic woodsy, bold, rich flavor, and it's it plays wonderfully in brown liquors. Um, and then I also have some bitters that use a, a couple a little dash of uh, Lapsang Souchong, and that gives Which you a beautiful smoke. smokiness. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Speaking of Negronis, though, my sacred non-bitter, my favorite non-bitters improvement to our twist on a Negroni is to mezcal it. Mezcal instead of gin. Instead of gin. Are you giving that a shot? Holy shit. Oh, go home. My liver's oh. like, dude, just why, why are you doing Let's this? Let's go do this. <laughs> so the so what are the basics that someone needs? I mean, you have this great book out, and it, it's, it's photographed beautifully. Um, what are the basics that people need tool-wise to start making bitters at home? Uh, it's it's as simple as it could possibly so be. So we, we talked about some of the ingredients yeah. you can get over the internet, but what else? Alcohol is glycerin. What else are we looking yeah. at? So you get some alcohol, um, and that's usually just anything overproof. The, the, it's the ethanol that is what is extracting the, the, the aromatics and the flavor compounds of these botanicals. So you, uh, the higher the proof, the more the extraction. Um, I used to use, in Oregon, we can get the really, really overproof, whatever it is, 190-something Everclear. I actually prefer... There's a name for that. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Everclear. Uh, but you can, but I think like the 160 uh, proof range is a fantastic uh, place to get your booze, and that gives you a really beautiful extraction. There's just enough alcohol, uh, just enough water in there to give you some of the water extraction too, because some molecules are water soluble. Correct. So you get that, and then so you, you your alcohol and your bitter, the, the alcohol you pick will be based on the bitters you want to make. So you could use a shorthand and even use a gin. So you've got already kind of a complex base. Right, with the botanicals that are present in it already. You got it. Or you could use an overproof uh, um, bur- uh, rye or bourbon or you name it. It's, it's easy to do. And then the other ingredients you need is a, a, a mason jar and uh, some cheesecloth. For straining at the end. For straining at the end. That's kind of more or less it. So this is really like DIY. Yeah, yeah. dropper bottles. You can buy those online too for a buck Talk each. Talk about, because you have a good section of the book, which is really neat. Because, uh, you know, when you're getting these exact recipes and you read a recipe that says, you know, it's pretty precise on the alcohol, an ounce of this, an ounce of that, so much of lemon juice. Of and then there'll be a shake of something. Yeah. And then you bore down on like, which yeah. kind of makes sense yeah. as, as like a chef and someone with even half a brain that, yeah, I mean... All jars aren't shaped the same. All of those little plastic tubing yeah. things are the same. Talk about the variation in that. I mean, I talked about we, we, yeah. I've got a lot of baking friends, and we talk about like I hate recipes where the the ingredients aren't weighed out. They're done by yeah. measure because a cup of flour. So you have flour sitting at home that's been pounded down, that's been sitting on the store, that's been the pallet got slammed, the box got slammed, it hit a shelf, yeah. it fell on your car floor, and now it's sitting, and so I. It, the variations between a cup of that versus a cup of fluffy flour is like ounces, yeah. and it completely steers the recipe the wrong way. Yeah. 
So, I mean, if you're not going by weight, you're really you're just shooting in the dark. Yeah. And same thing with the idea of a dash. Yeah. So talk about how you – what the variations in what a dash is and, and a, a way to correct that at home. Yeah, I actually did a, dash, a dropper to dash conversion. And it was crazy. And yeah, and that's and, and the hardest part is that bottles have different size restrictors. So the restrictor is a little plastic cap on the top right, of it, thing on the top, that and white thing, a little white thing. And they're different. The, the, there are folks like the Dale DeGroff Pimento Bitters has a restrictor that, that you could drive a subway through. It's just this huge bottle. So you and he's a smart man. He wants you to lose a lot of his use a lot of his bitters. So <laughs> um, uh, you do a dash, and it's like it fills your glass up. You're like, well, that was enough bitters. Uh, and then you take something like an Angostura or a, a Regan's, and it's just a little bit that comes out at a time and frankly the other weird part is actually a parabola when you have a little bit of liquor uh, uh, liquid in the bottle a little bit comes out and then as more and more and more comes air, out right, the more air you bitter. have in yeah. right. and then for some uh, uh, fluke of physics that I won't get into when there's almost none left very little comes out again basically the reason why is because there's not enough energy Wait. behind the yeah. Right. The, the liquid to come flowing back out. So you have this parabola of a little bit. At the beginning of the bottle, you're getting nothing. Middle of the bottle, you're getting twice as much as you yeah. thought. End of the bottle, you're getting nothing again. Yeah. So if you're using a dash, um, in, in my first cookbook, uh, Salted, I actually refuse to use tablespoons as my salt measure. Um, it's like just baloney. Salt is this living, breathing material. Every single salt's different. You're a cook. You need to know your ingredient. You have to use your fingers. So I just insisted on that. And with the bitters book, I wrestled over and over and over again. Salt so, because the surface area is a different shape of the crystals. Yep, different. Right, like different if you weights. T- if you if you picture like that, what's that stuff? That the one with the woman with the umbrella uh, that yeah. no one uses. Whatever we won't name that one. Right, whatever with the one with the iodine in it. Like that stuff is like lethal. Like yeah. you pour that into a teaspoon, and it's like a gazillion p versus kosher salt, which is kind of what most chefs used to as because I remember early on when people say why do you use kosher salt I'm like because I could feel it yeah. I said if you look closely if you sprinkle it down it looks like snowflakes yeah, yeah. it covers it's crunchy and then we'll get in the world so, but there's like a total difference like that other stuff that, that like popcorn it's like the worst it's like so salt dense and gross it, <laughs> salt dense and, and I gross. love salt yeah I think that's what it says on the side of the box <laughs> salt dense and gross plus iodine yeah which you don't need because no one's getting you don't need it that, that you get it elsewhere gout or whatever not gout what, what was it what was uh, goiter goiter thank you thank yeah. you um and you even have so it's it's an amazing book on how to make bitters at home, which is kind of again for all you DIY types. And I, I give hats off to to the whole millennial generation because they've really run with this ball. And I think yeah. so much of the food culture today that's so vibrant and the alcohol culture, wine culture, is because you, this you young kids are just so smart. You've embraced this thing. Americans have so much spirit and energy that you've just taken it like way past where anybody else has, and and it keeps going this way. But yeah. you're also incorporating like. You have like a chipino recipe there mm-hmm. with like with like a citrusy not a citrusy like an anisey flavor. Yeah. So you're incorporating it not so we're getting out of the alcohol realm and saying you know how about if we do a salad dressing that incorporates bitters? How about if we do this yep. chipino that incorporates like what? So talk talk about that because that's, yeah. that's kind of funny. That's really almost getting out of your purview. Yeah, and it, it, it's you know. The, the, one of the main reasons why I even believe in making your own bitters at home is because I don't think you should use bitters a little bit at a time once in a while. I think bitters should be part of your life. And we all, we're all busy as heck, but we all love flavor. We love stuff that, that's dense and intense and bold. So bitters let you add flavor in by the dose. So if you're using bitters a lot, making it at home, it's it's easier than than, than – preserving. It's easier than pickling. It's easier than anything else. And now you've got this beautiful, powerful, complex f- additive that you can use in drinks and in cooking. 
So to me, a salad dressing, we all know we love bitter in a salad already. That's why we use arugula and, and endive, barbecue and endive and all that right. good stuff. And, and, and acid from the vinegar, which is on the bitter side yep. of it. Right. It's fantastic. And even zests and all right. that. So it's fantastic to have in there. So a, a bitters in a dressing just accentuates that. So what I'll do is I'll just make a dre- any old dressing, could you know, whatever, a shallot vinaigrette. And I'll do a mess of grapefruit bitters in there or lemon bitters in there. The whole thing comes alive. Right, the citric component, yep. these high-end tones you're getting. Caesar salad. Uh, you know, and one of the things I'll mention, by the way, is that you know, if, you, if you haven't paid attention to lettuce lately, it is not the same as it was 10 or 20 years ago. They bred all the bitterness out of it. So you're buying – romaine used to be this dense – like if you look at old school romaine, it's these dense little curly little leaves that are, that, that are dark green and bitter and delicious. So much flavor. That's gone. And yeah, that's like watery stalks. Yeah. So – yeah, watery stalks. With some like, green things around. It's weird. You just juice it and be done with it. And, that, that, and that's like a horror to me. Um, so I, you know, but you can use some bitters in your dressing with a Caesar salad. It's fantastic. So I use it in all my dressings. And same thing with a sauce. If I'm, if I'm deglazing a pan, I'll throw a little sherry, a little bit of uh, brandy, a little bit of tequila in there, a little bit of wine, and a dash or two of bitters. And it just, it just kicks it. That I mean, I'm, I'm, I am a salt person, so I'm always thinking about that already. But this is another little tool, another right. little trick right. up your sleeve. And I love the Chipino idea. So we have this, this yeah. sort of West Coast seafood stew that's uh, – I mean, every culture that has a coastline makes some very – I mean, yep. I don't care if you're Korea, Japan, Southern Italy. Everyone's making something where they're steaming open clam shells and mussel shells using that broth. And then let's throw a couple of scallops in there. We have the shrimp laying around. We have a little bit of this yep. and, you know, yep. blah, blah, blah. And then you're, you're adding this one, what, like, was it a fennel component? A fennel? Yeah, fennel bitters. Which makes sense because, like, in Bouillabaisse Bays in the old days, I remember the French were constantly adding – they would finish it with Pernod. Yeah, right, or exactly. or one of those. Yeah. Or actually have shaved fresh fennel as part of the broth. Both of which are such a strong move. Yeah, so smart. Yeah. So this is just short, shorthand for that. Dude, it's a great book. Um, you know, it, I never thought it would, I would be inspired to make homemade bitters, but I'm thinking I'm going to start doing this stuff because, I mean, come on. Why not? Like, you're supposed to be a chef. Walk the walk, dude. Walk the walk. And, you know, and I'll mention again, it's easier than people think. It also takes less time than you think. Yeah, just in terms of assembling, and then just a matter of time for the maceration, wait. Yep. X amount of days, weeks, months, and strain, and you're done. To, you're good to go. And and and, that, and one of the things I found in my exploration with the book is the internet. On the on the internet, you find these these recipes that say let it stick for one month, three months, six months, blah blah blah. I find that I'm getting tremendous flavor in days. Period. Or days and several days, maybe a week for certain things. You get all the high notes, all the bright strident flavors come out right away, and then all that time after that, you're just getting these tannins and alkaloids and stuff that it's yeah it's bitter and dense which is kind of cool but it's the flatter flavors right so i use bright shiny bittering agents like gentian root and chinchona bark to give me bold fresh like sharp bitterness and then i also keep my bitter my my, uh, aromatic ingredients in there for a short time so they're also bright you get a much brighter kind of high profile high fidelity bitters love it man sounds like cooking Sounds just like when we make socks and soups, and yep. when when it's perfect, it's perfect. Cooking another two hours won't make any. You're just gonna, yep. you know. Uh, <laughs> I talked about that last night with a friend of mine. We we're just like, well, how you know, people, you don't your stock does not need to be on the pot for f- four days. It yeah, does not true. help it. It's true. It's, it's correct. I mean, unless you unless you got the honking big ass cow hips and big bones, and even yeah. then, you're probably twelve hours and you're done. Yeah. Um, all right, great book. Um, uh, the field guide to bitters and amari. 
Mark Bitterman appropriately named wrote the book. It's super. It really is. I mean, if you want to do, get yourself something like a gift for if you're a DIY inclined person, this is a great book to have. Everyone's in the cocktail world. Everyone's into the spirits world. You need this book. Who's the publisher? Uh, Andrews McBeal. Andrews McMeal. Available at Amazon in any store near you, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's right. Got you. Thanks for coming in. That's it for Food Talk. we got a great show coming up next week. Stay tuned for that. Be well. Eat well often. See you in a week. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. The one and only Dave Arnold brings the noise to Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday on Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick and Brooklyn. If the bomb was going to drop and you only had 15 minutes, which is like, I can, I can make a sandwich in 15 minutes. He would be eating a sandwich. I, I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich. If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? Not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like, your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there... people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more mile-a-minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher.